0: listening to City Church Long Beach Sermons Podcast. You can visit us at citychurchlongbeach.org. Amen. Thanks, Bill. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Brenna Rubio, and I'm the other pastor here at City Church. It's so fun to be together this morning. We have just a total privilege uh, that we have an incredible friend of City Church who is joining us this morning to lead us, to teach us. Uh, His name is Rogelio Rodriguez. Rogelio, can you wave? Oh, he gave you a peace sign. All right. There you go. There's Rogelio. He is an awesome guy, and he's been such a great friend to City Church. Uh, over the last year or two, which I think is when we we first really started getting to know him. Uh, Rahelio is a dad. Earlier, he was holding his adorable new little baby son, Judah, in his lap. Judah is about three months old. And he also has a four-year-old and a six-year-old. So we were actually talking a lot about coffee. And for those of you who live sort of in that like Long Beach Lakewood kind of border, uh, Rahelio has a recommendation for you. So if you have not yet checked out um, Wolf's Brew Coffee, that is apparently where you need to go. All right. So you want a good cup of coffee this morning or maybe tomorrow because it's a three-day weekend for some of us, right? Wolf's Brew is where you want to go for that great cup of coffee. But Rogelio is a dad. He's an artist. And he's also a pastor at a city church of ours in Long Beach, Parkcrest, And so it is just, it's just awesome to have him joining us this morning. And he's gonna continue us in the series that we've been going through over the last uh, few weeks as we've kicked into 2021. And we are talking about plot twists. There is this sense that the world does not actually work the way that we've been told that it does. It's not meant to work the way that we have so often been told. And we see that all over the Bible, and we're particularly looking in the book of Isaiah uh, to see just these, these traces of the, the hidden plan that God really has for God's world. And so we're so excited to get to hear from her Helio this morning. To kick it off, our friend Wendy Cantrell is going to read scripture for us. So Wendy, whenever you're ready, you can unmute and lead us in this reading from Isaiah. Isaiah 49, 8 through 12. This is what the Lord says. In the time of my favor, I will answer you. And in the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant of the people, to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances, to say to the captives, come out, and to those in darkness, be free. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them besides springs of water. I will turn all my mountains into roads, and my highways will be raised up. See, they will come from afar. People of God, this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thanks so much, Wendy.
1: All right, I think that's my cue to jump in. Okay, I'm getting the thumbs up. That's as uh wendy thank you for reading that even as you read that so i've been reading over this passage uh a lot in preparation for this talk and even hearing you read it knowing that it's being heard by a community of people there's something that uh it just gets my heart fluttering i I get really excited because of the implications of what of what's being said here but uh before i jump into that i want to start by just telling you a little bit about uh looks like many of you have kids so you probably have gone through the stage of babbling babies in the background (laughs) and uh, one of the things that my kids are going through right now is uh, my six-year-old is an avid reader she is just eating just eating every book she can she can get her hands on which personally she and I do Squirrel Girl for bedtime and I just love it Um, but my four-year-old he's not there yet he's not reading yet what he's doing is he's spelling words out that he sees on signs and he's asking me papa what does that mean what does that say and so when you're driving you're getting you're always hearing like s-t-o-p papa what does that say you know and, and as we keep moving through he does his best to read the allen tires sign and just never finishes it but the other day we're driving driving him to preschool and he says uh papa uh, a-t-o-y-o-t what does that say papa and I'm, I'm thinking, okay, I'm, just tra- I'm not paying attention because I'm trying to drive here, buddy. So I, lo- uh, I say, spell it again for me. It says A-T-O-Y-O-T. What does that spell, Papa? And I'm like, well, I'm really embarrassed to tell my four-year-old I can't spell that word because I don't know what that says. I'm like, I-, I don't know what that says, buddy. Where do you see the sign? And he, and he says, uh, it's on my window. So when we park at the preschool, I look over and there's a Toyota sign on the outside of the window. And I was like, oh, buddy, that says Toyota, but it's backwards. You're, you're, it's backwards. You're looking at it the wrong way. And I think about this passage from Isaiah, and I think it's really, really easy to hear what is said, especially if you read all of Isaiah 49. There's some really hard stuff in there. There's some stuff where we're, you hear about uh, God coming and causing the conquerors to uh, devour their own flesh, to be drunk on their own blood. And it just sounds like God is going to come in and he's going to wreck things all for the elite, all for his chosen people. And I, and I can understand why Israel might feel like that. I can understand where, when you're a captive, when you're a person who is being subjugated and you're being oppressed Every single day, you, you, your, your land has been wiped out. Your, your, your places of worship have been, have been dishonor, desecrated. Your whole way of life has been dishonored. And I get why you not only read it that way, but you want it that way. You want God to say to you, I'm going to take over. And, and, and when I do, you're going to have the keys, not them. But thinking about that sticker on my, on my window... I wonder, um, are we looking at it from the wrong perspective? Because from our perspective, we have the lens of Christ. Because when you look at these words through the person of Jesus, it it, it doesn't talk about conquest. It talks about compassion. You don't see an enforcer God. You see a defender God. And those are so dynamically different. I think about what it means to be an enslaved person, to live in anger, to, to live for, for vengeance versus being a, a person of Christ who follows Jesus and, and is called to live differently, to, to seek change through peace. It's a harder way, but that's, that's the way of Jesus, right? I think about the who, God's, who God was to Israel and then trying to figure it out. And who God is to us, being able to look back through the lens of Jesus, because we know that Jesus is God. But do we always admit that God is like Jesus? Because that makes God, that frames God differently. If Jesus is the fullness of Christ or of of the Father, then, then God is framed differently through the lens of Jesus, right? Through the lens of Jesus, God isn't here to wage war, He's here to rescue His people. God isn't looking to attack. He's looking to defend. God isn't looking to build a new empire. He's looking to build a family. And to think that Jesus is telling us to live through compassion, not conquest, I, I, it, just, it just completely flips the script of the God I grew up knowing. It is not a judge, judgmental, a judgmental God. It's not a, a wrathful God. It's not a God who's always watching for you to fail. It's a God who's who's an advocate for you. Who's an advocate for all people. I just so he, one of the lines in this thing that really just rocks me, is when the prophet says, "I will turn my mountains into roads. My highways will be raised up, and they will come from afar." Because when you read the scriptures what happens on a mountain? The mountains are for the elite, right? They're, they're the places where God meets not all humanity, but usually meets the elite of humanity, right? He, he met Abraham on the mountain. He met Moses on the mountain. He met Jesus on the mountain. And when you're, when you're talking about this big God who is connecting with people through one person on the top of a mountain, what does it mean when God is saying, I'm done with the mountain. I'm going to tear down the mountain for the sake of roads. God is talking about restructuring the, dy- the dynamic between God and, and mankind. He's talking about shifting power away from a hierarchy and making it uh, approachable and available to all people. One of the things that uh, sticks to mind, uh, comes to mind is... Um, why, why would God do that if it's working, right? But I think there's something about a mountain that we just have to recognize. Um, if you've ever climbed a mountain, um, you probably did it when you, when you were kind of up for it. It's not something you can get out of bed and go out and do, right? There, you, you got to plan for that. There, you have to have a level of strength and skill and stamina to get to the top of the mountain. You got to, you recognize that they're, they're steep and they're hard to scale, but, but a road, Man, anyone, anyone can get down a road. Anyone can get on a road and, and get to where they're going. It's just a totally different experience. And I think that's exactly how God wants it. He doesn't want it to be this test to see who can prove themselves worthy of getting into his presence. God is just saying, um, we're, we're gonna tear this thing down. We're gonna take the rubble and we're gonna build roads. And those roads are gonna be for all people all people are who God wants in front of him. You're talking men, women, young, old, queer, straight, every single nation, every single person is who God wants at his table. And so that's what he's doing in this passage. So when you read this through the lens of Jesus, you see a compassionate God. You don't see a warrior king. You don't see a conqueror who's looking to take over. You're seeing a God who is rescuing not just Israel, but all people, that they may come from afar and stand before the Lord and not be judged, but be loved. What a, what a huge shift from the God I was told about as a child. And as i'm talking about this god i get excited and i and i i'm filled with joy and i'm I'm looking at everyone's faces and i just know god loves you and he sees you and he knows every every single detail about your life and he and he draws you in because he's not he's not interested in conquest he's looking for compassion so i wonder what that means for us we know that we are the body of Christ. We know that Christ is the head. And so if you got the head and you got the body, you would hope they'd be going in the same direction. Right. But, but we have to ask ourselves day in, day out, are we people who appeal to a spirit of conquest or, or a spirit of compassion? I mean, I'm just going to say it. Uh, when I, whenever, anytime I hear The evangelical church in in an article or in a newspaper. uh, In a video on TV in the news um, it's usually not followed by did something compassionate like i'm just I don't hear that and I don't think it's because the media. hates Jesus I don't think it's because the media is trying to feed us something that. uh, that is gonna manipulate us in any way. I just don't think that's why. I think it's because the church, the body, we're going in a different direction. And so I don't wanna spend a ton of time talking about us as a church, but I wanna just go through a couple of, I wanna say a couple of words and I wanna know what resonates with you. And as I say these words, think about the church. How are we showing up? What spirit are we appealing to? But I also want you to think about yourself. I want you to think about who you are, how you show up in your home, how you show up in your marriage as a parent, as a student, as a brother, as a sister. Just think about these words and ask yourself, am I living, am I appealing to a spirit of conquest or or a spirit of compassion? And so when I say the words force and influence, which one are you using? Which one are you appealing to? Again, think about your spouse. Think about your kids. Think about those who report to you at work. Do you use force or influence? Um, You guys have heard a few times. I'm a father of a six, four and a three year, six, four year old and a three month old. And my four year old has figured out uh, I can't force him to do anything when I'm changing a diaper. So anytime I'm holding my, my three-month-old, my four-year-old turns into the Terminator. He just has no respect. There's nothing I can say or do. And even when I, when I like puff myself up and I try to get forceful and I stand over him, I'm like, Joshua, I told you blank. He just looks at me like I'm two inches tall because he's like, you're holding a baby, man. It's just not, and he's a cute baby. So you're even less intimidating right? Knowing that has forced me to rely on influence. I have to appeal to common interests. He doesn't want to disappoint me. He doesn't want me to look at him with eyes of wrath. He doesn't want me to be angry with him. He, He loves me and he wants to see love in my eyes And so I'm, as I'm holding my babies, I'm changing his diaper and I'm looking at Joshua and I'm just wondering, man, how do I get this guy to do what I want? Uh, It even raises the question, um, why am I making him do what I want? Why is that so important? What about the words define truth or discover truth? Because those are different. Defining truth says I already know what I know, everything I need to know. So I'm gonna define it for you. I'm gonna tell you how it is versus discovering truth. To know that I don't know everything and to go beyond that and to say, I might be wrong about these things. There's There's a spirit of compassion and humility when you can say, I need to discover truth. I need to find the truth. And if if I believe the truth is true, then no amount of digging, no amount of questioning or conversation will ever undo that thing. What about these words? Um, How much time are you spending justifying something versus seeking justice? When you're having a hard conversation with someone are you doing more talking or listening, right? It is, I feel like it's almost systemically trained. As Christians, we are, we're called to be defenders of the faith. Man, we have gotten really good at arguing and shutting people down. We've gotten so good at ignoring people, ignoring people's stories, because we know the truth. We know all we need to know. And so we can go and we can justify. You look at this passage, and again, you see, if you're not looking at this in the lens of Jesus, you're talking about a God who is taking over, not defending. And if that's the lens you're seeing this through, then you will die on the mountain justifying this conquering God. When in reality, um, I don't think that God exists. I think you're totally missing the compassionate God, who is calling you to a better way? Are you someone who looks for equity or are you looking for an edge, right? I think about at your workplace, in, in your communities, in the schools for your kids, are you looking for advantages? Are you actually participating? Are you, are, you, are you garnering something for yourself from these advantages in spite of the fact that they are disadvantages for others? Yeah, I mean, one thing I've learned by working with people is uh, whenever people proclaim what's fair, it's usually a little more fair for them than it is for everybody else. That's, that's the way it works, I'm no different. Um, but just acknowledging that, am I, am I looking for equity or am I looking for an edge? Are we people who proclaim that victory goes to the strong? Or are we people who are arguing that voices should go for the weak? Do we care about giving voice to those who do not have a voice, who do not have a platform? Here's a really easy question to to try and figure that one out. Who are the people you follow? Who are the leaders you follow? Who are you voting for? Whose books are you reading? Who are your mentors in life? Man, that's, that's a hard one because up until maybe, maybe a year and a half ago, two years ago, T.O.P.S., I was only reading white-educated men. I was only reading books by white-educated men. A guy who was raised by immigrant parents. I just, I never, I never even questioned who was, who was leading my thoughts? Who was leading my heart? We gotta question that. The last one would be conviction or care. Do you operate out of, out of deep convictions or do you operate out of care for others? I think about the church. How does the church respond to suffering? How are, how are we responding to people's pain, to their stories, to their lived experiences? Are we just holding fast to the things we believe to be true? Do those matter more than people? Sean Palmer wrote a book called Unarmed Empire. And in it, he says this, we are free to hold convictions about multiple issues and conflicts. We are not free, however, to hold those convictions in the the absence of love. Jesus knows what history should have taught us. Conviction without love ends in oppression. Think about those words. Conviction without love ends in oppression. That may not be the intent, but that's the truth. And maybe for us, our our appeal to this conquering spirit, this this, uh, power grab nature we tend to have, maybe it's not so overt. Maybe it's not so... uh, openly aggressive. We maybe are not people who would go and, and lay siege to the Capitol. Maybe we weren't in that crowd, but are we participants? Are we people who participate in that system that appeals to power, to conquest over compassion? I think about privilege, right? And, and privilege just being this 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 force, this power uh, in a system that, that accommodates some uh, by alienating others. You give a little more to some by taking from others and the system is built that way. And I, I recently, um, again, I talked earlier about who are the voices shaping me, my heart, my theology, my, my, my preaching. Um, Billy Graham was someone who I always heard and I always read about And I went back and listened to his his talks. And I'm not actually even saying anything negative about Billy Graham. I'm just saying that's one of those people who I always heard as like this champion of our faith. Um, And I recently read something that honestly made me really, really sad. It really broke my heart because here's a person who had the the ear of our country for so many years. So many people came to to these, these talks he would do thousands upon thousands of people, major influence, really helped shape the American church uh, and our preaching in lots of ways. But I recently read um, Billy Graham's response to Dr. Martin Luther King's uh, dream speech. I'd never heard this before, but Billy Graham was asked uh, how, what he thought about that speech, what he thought about the ideals that Dr. King spoke of. And he said, um, we won't see little black boys and girls holding hands with little white boys and girls in Alabama until Jesus returns. What are we saying? What are we doing? If, if justice for the suffering is God's problem, then why are we here? That's so hard. I'm a crier, just so you guys know. That's why I grew a mustache out, compensate, overcompensate. Um, That's so hard to hear because I'm not here to demonize Billy Graham. It just breaks my heart that the people, the body of a compassionate God doesn't, see the error in our ways, when we make the suffering of the weak, God's problem to fix, because we're too busy building a system and a structure, man, we have just lost our way. And this whole pandemic season has been really uh, difficult on people. And there's been lots of suffering and it's, and it's just been a trial for everyone. Obviously there's varying costs that we've had to pay but it's been really interesting being a pastor during the pandemic and seeing how people respond to the choices you make as a church leader. Um, I had so many conversations with people who were upset that we wouldn't open our doors. So many people were angry that we wouldn't open our doors And, uh, one of the things that I just told people was that, Hey man, I'm a, I'm a pastor, not a doctor, you know, like I'm going to listen to the doctors when it comes to your health. I'm going to listen to the doctors because I'm a pastor, not a doctor. And that worked for a little bit, but then like people started getting louder and more demanding and more aggressive. And so now we're seeing people deciding to leave. And, and again, there's people in this, room who have left Parkrest and come to City Church and I could not be more grateful because I love the people who I see here and I love them and I love City Church and it brings me so much joy to know that they are in a space where they can be themselves they can fully be who God made them to be and be fully authentic and live out their convictions in a compassionate way but when I hear people leaving um because we're not giving into conquest because we're appealing to compassion, man, that just, that messes you up as a pastor. It, it really hurts you. One of the things that was baffling to me was uh, one of the folks who left said, uh, hey, one of my biggest issues is that we have focused on a horizontal gospel and we've abandoned the vertical gospel. And I had never heard that. And so I asked her, can you unpack what that means? What, what do you mean by that? And she, uh, she said, uh, everything we talk about is oriented to being a good neighbor and social justice. Like, when are we going to get back to our relationship with God? And I'm just, again, dumbfounded. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's, that's hard to hear because I think about Matthew 25 40 and Matthew 25, uh, Jesus is giving these parables. And this one in particular is about a King telling his servants how they have loved him well. And they have, they have, uh, served him well. He, they, they, they fed him when he was hungry. They clothed him when he was cold. They were there for him when he was needy. And his servants respond by saying, when, did you, when were you hungry? When were you cold? When did you need anything? You're the king. And he says, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. That, that is what a relationship with God looks like. Loving people is what a relationship with God looks like. So when you're leaving a church because all we ever talk about is loving people, when are we going to get back to loving God? Man, I think you just kind of missed it entirely. And that's hard. That's hard. And it's I think it's easy for us to say that's not my problem. Even as a pastor, I can have that conversation and say, hey, that's, that's their prerogative, that's not my problem. But privilege allows me to say that's not my problem. Uh, Christina Cleveland has this poem about privilege. And I just wanna read a couple lines for you out of this. She says, privilege says, learn my language, my customs and my particularities, so we can all enjoy unity. Privilege says, I'll only listen to people who experience oppression if they communicate in a way that's easy for me to understand. Privilege says, I've I've earned everything I've got. Privilege says, why are people who experience oppression always talking about oppression? Why can't we all just get along? Privilege says, people who disagree with me are angry. Privilege says, Your perspective is important, just not as important as mine. Privilege says my culture naturally embodies more of the characteristics of Jesus. Privilege says, I definitely follow, I definitely follow a poor, trans, person of color, leader. I just never have. Privilege says, this is the land of equal opportunity. Privilege says, I'm not privileged. Yeah, man, it's not your problem if it doesn't have to be your problem. That's, That's what privilege is. But compassion is making it your problem. Compassion is stepping into what is hard, even if it's beyond you, experiencing it through solidarity, not because of circumstance. That's the spirit of compassion. There's um, there's this woman called Gloria Richardson. I I only learned about her recently through uh, a newsletter. Andre Henry, Hope and Hard Pills. If anyone's looking for an inter- interesting podcast or newsletter, um, but he told me about Gloria Richardson. And uh, this is this is a photo of Gloria Richardson here. So even though you don't know, you may not know her, she's one of the major figures in the civil rights movement. Um, she actually didn't wanna be a part of the civil rights movement because she just couldn't get on board with the idea of nonviolence. The idea of nonviolence totally turned her off. She didn't think that was the right way because she was angry. She, she was angry for lots of reasons, right? One, she's living in the sixties as a professional who's, who's lost multiple jobs because of a system that oppresses not just people of color, but women. So she was angry and she wanted change, but she didn't, she refused to be a part of this this movement until she was convinced by her teenage daughter. Her daughter's the one who talked her into going to her first protest. And she said she was inspired by seeing the hope her daughter had to make change for the future. So she started attending and as she started attending, Um, She was pretty dynamic because she eventually started taking over these things. She started taking over the protests. She started planning them. She started rallying people together. And within a short period of time, uh, she became one of the leading figures in the movement. And in 1963, when Dr. King led people on the March on Washington, she was there. She was actually one of five women who were honored during during that speech. But when she when she asked for a little bit of mic time, when she asked to just just to address the crowd, uh, she was turned down. She was denied the opportunity. Uh, actually, as she walked by the microphone, she was starting to say something, even though she had been told not to. And they, they cut the mic. And she was told because um, women were not going to be the prominent voices of this movement. What is insane is this photo was taken that same year. This photo was taken at Cambridge,, Maryland in 1963 at a protest that Gloria that Gloria led. And as, as Gloria and, and her fellow protesters began this protest by gathering together and praying that God would use this time to change people's hearts. They were pelted with rocks. They were pelted with eggs. They were attacked by their white neighbors. As they were praying, they were attacked. And so the National Guard was actually called out. But the thing was, the National Guard was not called out to stop the attackers. It was the National Guard was called out to stop the protest. The president thought the protest was the problem. It It was getting people upset. So the National Guard was actually sent to suppress the protesters, not stop the attackers. And so the reason I want to show you this photo is because I think this is what this is what it looks like to tear down the mountain. This is what it looks like to start building roads. Because if anybody in this photo has has reason to be angry, has reason to give give into a conquering spirit that demands vengeance, that demands wrath. I think it's Gloria. But to see this woman pushing a bayonet and just keep walking, I just see God. I see God's power, God's goodness, God's strength. I see God's compassion. She just pushes that blade away and she keeps marching because she'd been wronged by so many people. But man, she knew the mountain had to come down. And so I'd ask us as as followers of Jesus, followers of a compassionate God, um, just, just recognize that power tells you to climb that mountain, And privilege is gonna tell you to ignore the suffering from those at the bottom. Privilege tells you just enjoy the view, but the love of God, his compassionate spirit, he says that mountain has to come down and roads have to be built. And as I say those words, I just ask and I invite you to, to reflect What does that look like for you? What does it look like in your life to start tearing down that mountain and to start building a road for others? Because that is the call of a compassionate God.